The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. If you are new or just visiting, I am Pastor Bill. It is my joy to get to be up here to open God's Word with you today. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. We're going to be spending our time this morning in 1 Peter 4 and verses 12 through 19. I've titled this sermon, When Life is Hard. And for some, that starts very early. You may hear that title and you're thinking, oh, well, great, thanks. You know, that's... That sounds really uplifting. I'm sure glad I came today. And I get that. But I'm also going to say that I hope many of you, if not all of you, you leave encouraged this morning. This particular passage of Scripture is either a wonderfully encouraging passage or an incredibly frightening passage. As we go through our time this morning, what we will talk about is that that trials and suffering for being a Christian are going to happen. They are going to come. And if your faith is genuine, then the Holy Spirit is in you. And you will come through those trials stronger and more sanctified than in the beginning. And with that, you can have some assurance of faith. However, if you profess to be a Christian, but in reality, your faith is not genuine, then you will still go through trials. However, the Holy Spirit is not in you. And therefore, what will be revealed in those trials is that your faith is not genuine, that the Holy Spirit is not in you, that any assurance you have is actually a false assurance, and that you are not really a Christian. So again, my my hope, my prayer is that all of you leave this morning encouraged. But we'll trust the Lord to that end. Before we read, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, what a, a, a wonderful morning you have blessed us with already. We thank you that we have this time to worship you. We love you. We, we come here this morning and we recognize that we all fall short of your glory. We come here knowing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Fathers, we have been preparing through these songs to hear your word. I pray that you prepare our hearts to receive it. I pray that we would have the humility to be taught. I pray that if our minds are are distracted by other things, either plans later today, some stress that was from earlier in the week, help us to set those things aside in our minds and fix our eyes on you. I pray that for those in this room who know you and love you, that this time will be encouraging to their faith. That it will encourage them to, to keep putting their trust in you in all circumstances. Father, I also pray that if there are those in this room that that do not know you, our hope is that these words would be what you use to draw them to you and surrender their life to you. 
We confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Father, you provided that Savior to us through your Son, that his death on the cross would pay the penalty for our sins, that in so doing, his righteousness would be imputed to us, that we would then gain access to you in heaven. Our greatest need has been met, and we are thankful. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, our passage is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. God's word says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, last week, Pastor Brian was in Acts, and he talked about idols. In our passage this week, in 1 Peter, Peter is talking about suffering. And thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about how much, how much suffering exposes our idols. Suffering exposes our idol of control. Suffering exposes our idol of comfort. Suffering exposes our idol of safety. And even in saying that, and thinking about that with suffering, we can take it a little further. We may be okay with the idea that that we will suffer, but what about suffering when it comes to our loved ones? Our kids, for example. Does that expose an idol? Have we maybe made an idol of our kids. Now our passage this morning, and really much of this letter, it's not about suffering in general. There are other portions of scripture that will get into general suffering, or some suffering that comes from because God is, is disciplining us for sin. However, this is not the suffering that is primarily described here in First Peter. Peter is addressing the unjust suffering that comes to believers because... Well, the world hates Jesus. The suffering that comes as a result of following Christ. Now, certainly on on one hand, the, the persecution that the early church received, that the ones that this letter from Peter was addressed to, the persecution they faced and what we face today, well, they're not even on the same plane. We're not worried about being tortured or or murdered for our faith, not here in the States at least. So our suffering will be different, but it can still be suffering. 
And we'll get into some of the specific examples as we go. But this is suffering directly related to being a Christian. Those areas where we're standing up to what Scripture says may cause family members to cut off relationship with us. Or maybe means that we lose our job or experience great hardship in our jobs. Maybe we we lose our friends because of our faith. We are mocked at school or at work. So again, different suffering, but still areas of suffering for Christ. This is why earlier in the letter, Peter points out that we are sojourners and exiles. It says this in chapter 2, in verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of 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 the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We keep coming back to these two verses because I think they are key to understanding this letter as a whole. We also remember in chapter 3 where it said, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now here's what is helpful about working through a letter like this, verse by verse, like we've been doing. What Peter is saying here is not anything new in this letter. We touched on this a minute ago. He's been building towards this point throughout the letter. And he's been making the same point in different ways and at different times. So throughout this letter, Peter has been, has been preparing us to face suffering. And now he really gets into it in our passage this morning. So let's dive in. Verse 12 of our text. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Notice that he starts with the word beloved. Peter is writing them with genuine love. Some translations even show it as, as dear friends. So there is a love, a, a closeness here. It's a word used as affection. He cares about them. 1 Peter 2.11 is the only other time that Peter uses this word. There's also a bit of a change in tone almost here. It would be like saying you know, today, you know, I love you, but whew, you may want to sit down for this. And then he proceeds to say, Beloved or, or dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. I think many of you know that I, I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is considered a, a literal translation of the Bible. And some of you, you're using different translations, and that's okay. But I want you to hear this, because there are some translations where the meaning of this verse, I think, runs the risk of being missed. Verse 12, a a very literal translation of this verse would read, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you. So let's talk about these phrases. Fiery ordeal or trial. You may have noticed that this is not the first time that Peter uses, uses this phrase. Remember back in chapter 1 when Peter said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see the same word in Revelation 3.18 where it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Or we could also look at Malachi 3 where it says, But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The suffering, the trials that they are, they're going to come. They did for Jesus, and they will for you. But they are not meaningless. They are doing something. They are refining you. What does it say next in verse 12? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you or to prove you. All right, so a refiner's fire. What is that? Well, it's when you put metal in the fire and it comes out pure. A refiner's fire melts down metal such as gold or silver for purification purposes. Once a metal is in its melted down state, the, the dross of the metal rises to the top and then is removed from the metal before it cools. Well, that's great, but what does that have to do with our text? It's a good question. So Peter is saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you or to prove you. Don't be surprised because it's part of the refining process. You have to get rid of that dross to be purified. The way this process works is when like ore is cool or room temperature, both the metal and the dross are together. They are one. You may not even be able to see the difference from the dross with the impurities or the perfections. You can't tell where one starts and the other one ends. But when you add heat, when you put it in the fire... And it gets hot. It creates separation. The dross, the impurities become evident. And they break away so you scoop them out. You get rid of them so they they don't reconnect with the iron. They don't recontaminate. The pure can handle the fire. The impure cannot. This means that in this process, there are three things that might happen. If what goes into the fire is all dross then it will not survive the fire and it will be incinerated. Sometimes what goes in is already pure and there's no real change. Other times what goes into the fire then comes out very changed from the fire. So when Peter is talking about being refined by fire, by fiery trials, he's talking about our faith. We saw this in 1 Peter 1.7. Will it be destroyed as if nothing was there to begin with? Or will the change be minor? Will the change be major? 
See, with either of the last two, what comes out is pure and genuine. Spiritually, a trial or a trouble is that which shows you what you really trust. Trouble and trials are all about trust. Where do we put our trust? We'll see this later on when we get to verse 19. It's been said that we have divided hearts. You have the the dross, you have the impurities. You have different allegiances. Things that you trust or other idols. You may not even realize what they are. You won't realize it until you go into the fire. This fire causes us to see how inadequate these other allegiances are. And they cause us to see our need to trust in Jesus even more. Tim Keller once said, You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. When everything else is, is burned away as a Christian, you are then left with Jesus. A fire is, is any trouble, any suffering that divides your allegiances. That shows you the differences. So I think it's safe to say, taking from our text and what we see in Scripture, you cannot refine metal without heat. And in the same way, you cannot learn to grow in deep trust in God without troubles, without fire, without fiery trials. Do you believe that? You think about it with me. Fiery trials or suffering, it shows you what you really trust in. It, te- it also shows you the inadequacy of the things that you trusted in before. And it teaches you to really, really trust in God. Many of us will start our, our Christian walk and we'll say, oh, you know, I trust God. And we do. But we also trust other things. And you know, we trust in this and we trust in that. And we can get away with that for a while. We really have no idea just how much we trust in them until they are threatened. Until fire comes and then our allegiances are tested. When circumstances threaten our allegiances, it reveals where we have put our hope and where we have put our confidence. It may be that, yes, I believe in God. I've been so faithful I've prayed, I've been in his word, I I go to church. But now this is gone. God took that from me. So what's the point? What's the point of God without, without that? What's the point if I don't have that career? What's the point if we lost our house? What's the point if I lost my spouse? Or I never had one to begin with? What's the point if I don't have kids? What's the point if that's the diagnosis? In that, our testing is revealing. This fire is revealing that it's not God that we ultimately treasure. Now, to be clear, for most of us, please don't get me wrong, this will reveal some wrong allegiances. The question is not, do I have any wrong allegiances? The question is, when that testing comes, which allegiances will get put to the side and which will I grab onto or cling to? But this is one of the beauties of this text. When we are tested and we stand firm in the faith, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You want some assurance of your salvation? 
How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to fiery trials? When we stand up for God, when we are willing to suffer for following Christ, it is likely that that other allegiances will be revealed. But when we put those others to the test, and we trust Christ despite the consequences, we can do so because the Spirit is at work in our hearts. A fiery trial is any situation in which obedience and trust in God will cost you something very, very dear. It becomes our opportunity to find out if our relationship with the Lord is for us to serve Him or for Him to serve us. This is what these divided allegiances reveal. Let's look at it this way. Verses 12 through 19, what Peter is saying should be our attitude about suffering. About suffering if we are a Christian. What is it that Peter is saying that he wants us to do? I think there's six things that we can see in these verses from Peter. He says, do not be surprised. Rejoice. Don't feel shame for for what it means to be one that trusts God. Glorify God. Trust God. Do good deeds. Well, let's take these and and let's switch the order around just a little bit. We're not surprised at suffering because we know the suffering comes. Knowledge of a truth, well, that's theology, that's, that's doctrine, it's based on knowing something. How are we not surprised? First, by, by trusting God, by faith. And because of our trust in God, because of our faith... We don't feel shame for what it means to be one that trusts God. We have hope. Because we trust God, we can instead rejoice. We can have joy. That rejoicing leads us to do good deeds out of joy or out of love. Therefore, we glorify God. And it becomes about God's glory. This is what this looks like in action. So verse 12 reads, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, other other believers, if you are a believer, beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come. Notice it says when it comes, not if, because they will come. Those times where there are worldly consequences for our faith. They will come and they will test you and they will purify us. It's part of our sanctification. It's not strange. Something strange is not happening to you. You're not too good to be put through this. What are they? What are these fiery trials? Well, they can be lots of things. They can be real persecution. There may come a day when your life is literally on the line for Christ. I think of our friend and partner in the faith, Fokret Bocek, and his story. There may be times of great challenge or a time of suffering where what is being tested is, do you trust in God's sovereignty? Maybe through a, a medical diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. But it may be more likely to be a little bit more subtle than that in 2023 America. It may be those situations... Where the culture or your friends are pressuring you to to have sex outside of marriage. You have to take a stand. 
Maybe your job is requiring you to work on Sunday and you don't want to do that and you have to take a stand. Maybe that stand means you actually lose your job. Maybe you have a loved one who who professes to be a Christian, but they are living a lifestyle that is contrary to Scripture. And you know that if you say something, they will cut off their relationship with you. Or maybe they're not a Christian, but you still feel convicted that you can't support this. You can't act like it's okay. Are you going to stand for what Scripture says or are you going to cave? Maybe you're in school and you're invited to parties that you know you shouldn't attend, but you don't want to seem weird. What are you going to do? We can be surrounded today by lots of things that the culture says are good and to stand against them. You're called all sorts of hurtful names. Will you be insulted for believing in Christ? Let's keep going. Verses 13 and 14 of our text says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this is a little bit out of order. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. I think sometimes we think that the only way we suffer or face persecution for Jesus is is big extreme things that may never happen. And certainly those are on the list. But it also says that you are insulted. And we'll get to more of that later on, but I want to make sure that you see that. Verse 13 says, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. We rejoice because we recognize the work that it is doing in us. We rejoice that we are being strengthened, that the genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because we recognize that God is doing something in us. That we might enjoy him later. That we might enjoy him forever. What Peter is saying is that we can rejoice when we suffer as Christ did. When we suffer for Christ. Because we can know that it is preparing us to one day rejoice when God's glory is revealed. We rejoice in our refining. We rejoice when the dross is being removed. Remember who was writing this letter. This is Peter. Peter could write like this because of what he himself had, had endured in the name of Jesus. He had been mocked, despised, and persecuted. Again, while we may not be concerned about persecution like torture or being killed, we can understand being mocked or despised. If suffering for Christ should be the believer's experience, Peter reframes it as a reason not for bitterness or despair, but for joy. The thought that suffering produces joy is as strange as Peter's earlier statement that those who suffer are blessed, which we saw when we read 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This This does not mean... That the believer should enjoy suffering per se. Much less seek it out. But undeserved suffering because of our faith. 
Our faith in Christ can be evidence of future deliverance, which will bring the ultimate joy that we can experience. Society may judge the gospel to be irrelevant or even evil, but it is God's judgment that ultimately will stand. The Christian who stands fast and suffers for the gospel is responding to an eternal reality that will outlast death and even history itself. The joy prompted by recognizing this is a foretaste of the joy that Christians will experience when the glory of Christ is fully revealed. Peter consoles his readers that it is therefore better to stand by one's faith now, even though it results in suffering, and to deny Christ for present relief, only to suffer much worse in the, com- in the coming judgment as one who has denied and rejected Christ. This thought is all the more poignant coming as it does from Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus three times the night he was arrested. So we view this kind of suffering, this suffering for our faith with an eternal perspective. We consider 2 Corinthians 4 that says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remember, Peter is not suggesting that any kind of suffering should be caused for this kind of rejoicing. Instead, Peter is saying that when we suffer for following Christ, we rejoice because we are identified with Christ. Our trials in this way provide a glimpse into the suffering which Christ experienced and will therefore bring us into a closer relationship with him. We can remember Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When the people of God are persecuted, God himself is persecuted. This is how we are sharing in the suffering. If we are the people of God, then the Holy Spirit is in us, sanctifying us, causing us to grow to be more like Jesus. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we rejoice. So Peter is telling us that persecution and insults are actually a blessing. Again, not because pain is good, but because suffering for Christ proves that the Holy Spirit is ours and that we will one day stand or kneel before the Father. Suffering for the gospel is never to be thought of as strange. Many of us can can be tempted to struggle with God during times of trials. We wonder where he has gone. We wonder if he, if he even still cares. We feel abandoned in our hour of need. Peter tackles this feeling with an incredibly comforting truth. Take a look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
This is a timely word for us when we feel as if God's presence has left us. In actual fact, Peter claims that these seasons of difficulty are unique times when God's care and approval are especially on us. The exalted truth in our time of testing is that God's glory is resting on us. He is covering us. He is guarding and guiding us so we can be encouraged and rejoice. When reading verse 14 in our text, it would appear that Peter had committed Jesus' sermon on the mount to memory. For at that time, long before Peter would repeat it here, Jesus taught him saying, Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter is saying that it is a a privilege to share in righteous suffering. Our joy flows out of the knowledge of God's goodness in working in our lives in the midst of suffering. We don't grit our teeth as we face suffering, grumbling and complaining as we endure. No, we rejoice in suffering now. Because through suffering, God is preparing us to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The end will not be a day of fear and dread for us. It will be a time of rejoicing. As we receive the salvation, we are now awaiting by faith. So we can rejoice rejoice now, knowing that as we suffer, God is at work in us to keep us until the last day. We rejoice in anticipation of that great day. Now verse 15 of our text says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. What an interesting list. (laughs) And the same list as murderer is meddler or busybody. (laughs) Might want to highlight that. The term translated as meddler is a word that means an overseer of another's affairs. Meddlers interfere, usurping roles that are not properly theirs. They might even scheme to gain influence outside of their their sphere. They nose into matters that are not the proper concern and offer unwanted opinions. They speak when protocol calls for silence. No one gladly listens to a meddler. Most are irritated with them. If a child is misbehaving at the grocery store, how many parents will welcome child-rearing tips from the nearest cashier? It may mean that we don't always need to involve others in every situation with every person in order to stand up for Christ. We don't need to go and seek out persecution. There may be times when it is necessary, but I also think that sometimes as Christians, we forget that it says in 1 Thessalonians about living a quiet life. Note also that it doesn't say, let none of you murder, but says suffer as a murderer. There's also this progression in the list. It goes from one extreme to another. On one side, we have a sin that most of us will never, ever commit to a sin that most of us commit on a daily basis. It brings our minds back to what we read in chapter 2. 
For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When the spirit of glory so rests on us that we become more like Christ, we participate in his life. And insults suffered for the sake of righteousness prove that. But the progress of the disciple is always partial. So Peter is compelled to add a caveat. If you suffer, it should not be as a, as a murderer or a thief or any kind of cr- other criminal or even a meddler. Peter requires that we avoid criminal acts meriting punishment. He assumes that we will shun the foolishness that earns us displeasure. And note that refraining from murder also means no displays of anger, no resentment, no harsh judgment, scorning, scoffing, despising, or belittling. Refraining from theft also means no envy or greed, no manipulation or abuse of funds, no unpaid debts, and no waste of wealth or creation. We will suffer as a result of our faith. But we must not confuse this with suffering as a result of our failings. Peter covers the spectrum from being a murderer to being a busybody. Christians face the temptation to identify the consequences of our sin as Christian suffering. If you steal and are caught, you cannot argue that you are suffering unjustly. If I am known as someone who continually does wrong or or meddles in the business of others, I cannot complain when I am ostracized. That is not persecution. Suffering for your sins does not prove your allegiance to Christ. It may only prove that you have refused to leave behind your former passions. Don't suffer justly for actual sins, whether one extreme or the other. Let your reputation be such that the worst thing they can say about you is that you are a Christian. Verse 16 of our text says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In this case, Peter is instructing his readers to live in such a way that that the only crime against the state or society for which they are guilty is their Christian faith. This is a, a rare instance in scripture where the name Christian is used. It's believed that the name Christian at, the, at this time was used to mock. It means Christ follower, but it was used with contempt. So here, Peter is saying that even if you suffer as a Christian, even if you are mocked for your faith in Christ, for being a Christ follower, for living in word and deed consistently with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then do not be ashamed if society rejects and reviles you, whether through social ostracism or official prosecution. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed But glorify God. Something much more valuable than human approval. More valuable than not being mocked. Glorify God. Verses 17 and 18 of our text says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? For it is time. Remember verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. It is time for judgment to begin. And the reference here to the house of God picks up the image of Christians living as, as living stones in a spiritual house of God from chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Our judgment rests on the work of Christ on the cross. We have still sinned, but we are saved. Not by our works, but by the works of Christ. Then Peter turns to compare what we go through now with what those who do not obey the gospel will go through when Christ is revealed. He points us to Proverbs 11.31 to drive this point home, where it says, If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? The word scarcely, we can think of, we can think of this word as with difficulty. Christians are saved with difficulty, through Christian suffering. And if this suffering is hard for us who are being saved, imagine what judgment will be like for the ungodly and the sinner. This is a warning to those who are in the church but continue in their former passions. It is also an encouragement to Christians to endure suffering faithfully. Verse 19 of our text says, Therefore, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That those who suffer according to God's will, there is a purpose in the suffering. We are being refined. We are being purified. If we are believers, and we are being exposed if we are not. There is comfort in suffering in light of the sovereignty of God. That those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's plan, according to God's sovereignty. The creator God is sovereign over all things and he is faithful in all things. Therefore, we can live as exiles, suffering exiles without surprise or despair. And with a joy-filled, God-glorifying trust, all the while doing good, no matter what the world may do to us. Many of us know people who, who go through times of suffering and yet seem to have such joy and confidence in God. Remember what we discussed last time. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. God is the creator of everything. He is sovereign and he is good and he can be trusted. Now, I've heard people say things like, well, God seems cruel. If he is sovereign, then, then why did this happen? Or, or why did that happen? Or if he is in control and already has the plan, then what's the point? Why even pray? My answer to that is simple. Through some of my greatest trials and struggles in life, there's much more comfort running to and crying out to a God who is the creator of everything and who is in total and complete control 
than the God who is hands-off and does not act in my time of need. The Father who caused you to be born again is the creator of everything. Therefore, I, I can suffer knowing that God is good, that Christ suffered, and that the Holy Spirit is in me, strengthening me. I can entrust my soul to the creator of the world, to my creator while doing good, to his honor and praise. How do you do good to those who hurt you? You entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Notice he doesn't say to be, for you to be faithful, but he says that God is faithful. It's easiest to do good when things are going well, when we are prospering and healthy. But when we suffer as the consequences of doing good, living for Christ with all that it implies, how unreasonable it seems to continue to do the very things that are causing pain. That's what we are to do. We continue to live as a Christian, continue to observe appropriate social relationships, continue to minister to one another in the Christian community. Do not let persecution and suffering deflect you from your calling in Christ because they are part of that calling. Suffering, because one is a Christian, is therefore neither unexpected nor shameful because the connection of suffering and honor is embodied in Jesus Christ himself. Suffering is an opportunity to glorify God and a badge of honor for the living stones in the house of God. Joy rather than surprise. Blessing rather than insult. Glory to God rather than shame. The Christian is called to an enduring commitment to Christ's gospel amidst suffering caused by that very commitment. Peter has, suge has suggested some means to remain true during suffering and persecution. First, we must be ready when trials come. Second, we should rejoice that we are united to Christ. If we suffer insults, it shows that the Spirit of God rests on us. Third, we should suffer for the faith, not because we merit punishment. Fourth, no one should be ashamed to suffer because we bear the name of Christ. Fifth, we remember that we will stand before God the judge. Finally, when we suffer, we should commit ourselves to a faithful God and continue to do good. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in prayer and we acknowledge that you are good, that you are just, that you are holy. We acknowledge these things while also confessing that we at times forget these truths about you. We sometimes think that our plans are better than yours. We often think way too highly of ourselves and we think much too little about you. Lord, as we consider this topic, we know all too well that there are many in this room this morning that are struggling for various reasons. We know that many are struggling and yet may not even know about it. 
Father, help us to, to be a body that values you enough to be willing to be vulnerable with each other. That we will show grace to one another and encourage one another. We cherish your grace as we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. We have loved the gifts more than the giver. In your mercy, help us to see that all things we pine for are shadows, but you are substance. They are quicksands, but you are a mountain. That they are shifting, but you are an anchor. We plead your forgiveness on the merits of Jesus Christ. Accept his worthiness for our unworthiness. His sinlessness for our transgressions. His fullness for our emptiness. His glory for our shame. His righteousness for our dead works. His death for our life. To you be the glory. Amen.